Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true God in the springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Grace be with you all. When I was probably close to about Samuel's age, had something happen in, in our, in our uh, home that really was upsetting. I was outside playing baseball with my brothers, and as we often did, playing in the backyard, small backyard, neighbors fairly close, and oftentimes we would foul the ball, and the ball would go backwards over a side street and into the neighbor's yard. And this neighbor that lived there, he had an adult son, a single adult son who lived there, and he was in the process of restoring an old Chevy car. And so when the ball would go over, it was obvious that he wasn't really happy about the ball landing near his car. Well, this one day it went over and it landed pretty close to him where he could reach out and grab it rather quickly. And he hid it in his toolbox thinking that we didn't see it. And I went and told my dad, I was like, hey, the neighbor took my baseball. And my dad, he said, well, I'll take care of it, son. And so he went to our neighbor's house and he began to uh, discuss this with our neighbor. I'm watching through the, the window as this is all going on, and I can tell it's not going well at all. And my dad comes back in, and he's just furious at this point, without a baseball. And he literally, he takes his car and parks it in front of our neighbor's driveway so they can't get out. He's really, really upset. And he left it there for several hours, honestly, he, he, until he finally cooled off a bit. But I remember him saying this to my mom, and this is what upset me so much. He said, we're not going back to church anymore. And as an 8, 9, 10-year-old kid, I just was in shock. I thought, are we walking away from our faith? Are we abandoning our faith? And I know my dad was concerned about being a hypocrite. He'd lost his temper. He'd lost his cool, as many of us have from time to time, Right. And after really thinking it through, he realized, you know, what kind of testimony am I to this neighbor? Well, the good thing of the story, and my dad, if he watches this, uh, I remember, Dad, that you went to our neighbor later on, a few hours later, maybe a couple days later, and you made things right. And then, of course, after we, we'd only missed, I think we missed one church service as a result of all that that had happened. And I remember I got to watch Disney on Sunday night. That was nice because I never got to watch that, even though I felt terrible doing it. But we went back to church. Why? 
Because those who are truly in Christ, those who know Jesus as their Savior, you can't help but to want to be surrounded by people of faith. You can't help but want the body of Christ to be in your life. You can't help but want the Word of God continually preached to you. Because it's who you are. You've had an identity change. And with Family Worship Sunday, I just wanted to illustrate this real simply, thinking that maybe it'll stick with you. Guys, I want, I want this to, re- to represent, this, this jar to represent us. Those who are a believer in Christ. Those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Scripture tells us all over the New Testament that the believer is in Christ. And so I want us to picture this as being Christ and just picture you being in Christ. And so we're in Christ Jesus. That's our identity, who we are. And not only does Scripture tell us that we are in Christ if we know Him, it also says that Christ is in us. Christ is in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to light this candle and place it in here just to give a more visual illustration of the fact that not only are we in Christ, but Christ is in us. And if we could take it one step further with a bigger jar, Scripture tells us in Colossians 3.3 that we've died and our lives are hid with Christ in God. So there would even be a bigger container surrounding these that says, my life is hid in Christ in God. Now, not only is that our identity, that's a pretty secure place to be, right? A very secure place to be that Christ defines who we are and he keeps his children, the elect, safe and secure. How can this, and imagine one more level out, how can this not define who you are? If Christ is in you, you are in Christ and Christ is in God. Everything about life changes. And that's why my dad could not walk away. Because when he was in his early 30s, he had a major transformation. He came to Jesus. He got to know Jesus. He put his faith in Jesus, and it altered the trajectory of our family. And sure, he had bad moments, just like we all do. But Christ changed him and continues to change him. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture today, there are some people in this church in Ephesus who clearly were not in Christ, even though at one time they professed to be in Christ. And Paul literally throws them out of the church, tells Timothy, get rid of them because they are false teachers. They're hypocrites. They're fakes. They're blasphemers. They're not in Christ. So as we look at this passage in 1 Timothy today, remember this illustration. Remember that about your life. Does this define you? 1 Timothy chapter 1 We're going to be in verses 18 through 20, and Paul is going to tell Timothy that he's in a spiritual battle, and Satan wants to devour people as he mentions names even in this passage. So 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare." Holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hyphemius and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn 
not to blaspheme. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ coming to our rescue. And God, we know that this world is very tempting. And there's so many things that draw us away. There's so many situations where we can lose control, lose our testimony, lose our tempers. There's so many things that appeal to our flesh that want to pull us away from you. And God, we thank you for the protection of being in Christ and the Holy Spirit in us and us in you, Father. And God, may that be more and more definitive of our identity in real and practical ways. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, we're going to look at four things that Paul gives to Timothy in order to teach and to give to this church and also for him personally in order to protect him and help him to fight the spiritual battle that he's in. And the first one is right off the bat, Paul writes to Timothy there at the church of Ephesus where Timothy is pastoring. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Now, if you're reading this on your own, you may just like fly by this and miss the significance of this. And back in the beginning of the chapter, when we first, first week we looked at 1 Timothy, he stated in verse 3 that Timothy was to stop these false teachers who were teaching within the church of Ephesus because their teaching was contrary to the truth of the gospel. And then in verse 5, he tells Timothy, you need to get this church back to the main thing, which is loving God and loving others. Get back to love. Love should define this church, not all of this craziness and chaos that's going on in, on in this church. But look what this first part of this verse 18 says. It really defines and tells about the relationship between Paul and Timothy. We know that Timothy was Paul's protege. Paul probably was the one who led Timothy to Jesus. And he's writing to him in a very, very straightforward way, almost as if the general was telling his captain, look, I'm going to charge you here, Timothy, to do something. But you know what that tells me? That says that there's spiritual authority that exists and should exist in our lives. In a day and age where nobody likes authority, everybody wants to throw off authority, authority is something that was from an ancient, ancient civilization. It's not for today. I don't like anybody telling me anything, what to do. Timothy realizes Paul's authority spiritually. Timothy looks to Paul as his mentor. And Timothy hears Paul say, I charge you. And not only does he say, I charge you, as one would command, but he also says, my child. You're, you're my child, Timothy. There's a real relationship that exists here. And it's, it's accountability. Because the church body, we need one another to help us and hold us accountable because of the incredible war that we are in that many times we forget truly exists. And so we need accountability. We need those who are going to help us by not only reminding us, but sometimes really just getting in our face and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And then he says, he moves on, he says, next, I want you, Timothy, to remember your calling. You fight this battle by remembering your calling. He says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. So Paul is looking to strengthen Timothy by reminding him of his divine calling, reminding him of who he is in Christ, reminding him of what happened when he came to Christ and when these prophetic words were spoken over him to make him see his calling is to go out and spread the gospel into all the world. And this is probably very similar 
to the commissioning that we see in Acts 13 for Paul and Barnabas, who Paul was at that time was called Saul. In Acts 13, verse 2 and 3, it'll be on the screen for you to follow along. Paul was, uh, this was written about Paul, and, and it says, while they were worshiping the Lord, so this church is together, and they were fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks through some of the leaders there, and he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, for the work for which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they led, laid their hands on them and set them off. And so you see something very serious going on here. This is a, a commissioning service to send Timothy, or in this case, Paul and Barnabas off. But the same thing is true for Timothy, that there was this prophetic word that was spoken. Timothy, God is going to use you in a great way. And Timothy, my son in the faith, we're going to gather around you. We're going to lay hands on you to remind you and show you physically what God's going to, how God's going to use you and what he said to you. What an amazing thing. And you may think, well, I'm not a church leader. I've never really had a commissioning, so to speak, like that. Let me remind you, when you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit commissioned you. The Holy Spirit is in you, working through you, shining his light to the world of darkness. And so you're commissioned whether you realize you're commissioned or not. The problem is that we speak so much anti-gospel to ourselves all the time. In this world, we are operating as light, but what do we do? We say things anti-gospel like, I'm so alone. Or we say, God, I just don't feel like you're near me. Or I just don't have what it takes to do what you call me to do. I'm just not cut out for this. You know what that is? That's anti-gospel. We talk about preaching the gospel to yourself. That's preaching the anti-gospel to yourself. When you're telling yourself that, well, how can God use me? I'm sure not a Timothy. I'm sure not a Paul. God has commissioned all of us. And the gospel says that we have the presence of God, we have the provision of God, and we have the power of God to help us in what we need to do. And Timothy is being reminded of that. Timothy wasn't just sent out by a man. He wasn't just sent out by some elders in a church. He was sent out by the Holy Spirit. And for what purpose? Paul says that he needs Timothy to be serious about this calling because it's a war that he's in. Look at the, the end of the verse. That by them you may wage the good warfare. By this commissioning, by this prophetic word, you're going to wage this warfare. And Paul often uses military terms and warfare as metaphors in his letter. Because he knows that it's so easy for us to be taken captive by the things of this world. In fact, think about, if you know Paul's letters, you may remember a guy named Demas. And it's written by Demas that Demas had forsaken um, his, his camaraderie in Christ, those who he was serving with, those who he was ministering with. He departed, 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, because he loved the world. And he deserted Paul, and he went to Thessalonica. The New Living Translation says, Demas loved the things of this life. And we can all be susceptible to that, can't we? Because the stuff of this world is pretty cool. It makes us feel good. It feels very comfortable. It gives us great influence. It gives us power. And we can fall for these fake idols, these false idols, instead of following Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves, And we don't know the full situation, what happened with Demas. If he was truly a believer, we know that he came back. He returned back. But we know that Satan wanted 
to, as maybe the words that Jesus used, sift him as wheat. He wanted to steer him away, cause him to be shipwrecked. And I see many people who appear at some point in their Christian walk, they appear like they're a believer. You look at them and by all appearances, they seem like they're passionate for Christ. And then all of a sudden something happens. They just drift away. They, they disappear. They're gone. What happened? I think we just begin to coast and we begin to love the things of this world and pretty soon we make compromises, small compromises, and then we don't finish well. And we've seen people like that who just, they don't make it to the end. They quit. They give up. And their lack of perseverance shows that they were never truly in Christ Jesus. And so the battle is on to follow Jesus. And the more that we grow in our faith, the more this this light is going to shine to show for Jesus and cut through Satan's lies and his darkness. And that's our commission, is to be that light for people. And so Paul exposes here Satan. He's saying, look, Satan's after you. Satan wants to destroy you. And he's destroying people in this church. And so he reminds young Timothy, remember your calling in life. Remember it. And we learn from throughout 1 and 2 Timothy that Timothy struggled probably with timidity, fear, He was worried. He didn't know how he was going to stand up to these false teachers. He didn't know how he was going to handle being the pastor of this church. And Paul constantly encourages him to trust Christ, see his position in Christ, and follow Christ. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. And then the third and the fourth, and we see in verse 19 and 20, I'm sorry, in verse 19, how how Timothy is to fight this fight. He says, Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, what's this, faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. If you're familiar with the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, it's a whole chapter on taking on the armor of God, on spiritual warfare. And he lists many different weapons that we need to have in this battle. But here he focuses in on two things. He focuses on holding faith and a good conscience. He says, fight this fight by holding on to faith or holding on to the gospel. Some translations, maybe if you're following along in a different version, it will say um, in verse 19 to the end, some have made shipwrecked of, instead of their faith, it says the faith. That word there or the isn't in the Greek, the original language is written. I think probably a better translation is the faith. And so what he's pointing to is, Some have made a shipwreck of the faith. They've just abandoned any kind of commitment they said they once had to the faith. They've abandoned that. They've left that. They've shipwrecked their faith because they did not hold to the gospel. And we saw this the last few weeks that Paul was encouraging Timothy to expose these false teachers because these teachers had wandered off and weren't focusing on the main thing anymore, the gospel and Jesus and the cross and salvation and the resurrection. They had begun to focus all their attention on Pointless things, meaningless things, genealogies, myths. And they had forgotten what it was all about. And so he says to Timothy, hold on to the gospel. Don't get distracted from the gospel. And then he says, a good conscience. Fight by pursuing holiness. I'm going to say the holiness and a good conscience are very similar. So we're going to go with this idea of holiness and let me explain to you. They had rejected a good conscience and made shipwreck of their faith because our conscience is like a rudder, a God-given thing that all people are created and given at birth, 
And as they grow older and it's, it's, it's shaped and it's molded through experiences, through your parents and those things, but God has put within every person a rudder to help them understand between good and evil. It exists. Romans 1 talks about how that we can harden our hearts and eventually get where we don't want to hear our conscience. We're going to talk about that in a second. But the conscience is something that helps us to understand what's morally right and what's morally wrong and how to act in truth and belief and how to act in disbelief. And a few weeks ago, I gave away this great kid's book called That Little Voice in Your Head. And I think, Brennan, didn't y'all get this book? And I, today I wanted to give it out again since it's Family Worship Sunday because this, if, if adults, if you read this to your child, you'll really enjoy it yourself because it helps explain the conscience in a very uh, straightforward but very uh, age-appropriate way. And so on your little clipboards, those kids who took clipboards, does anybody have a number in the top left corner that says one, two, three, four, or five? Raise your hand if you have one of those clipboards that say one, two, three, or four, or five. Look at the front page of your, your thing. All right, you got one, Piper? You got one, Aubrey? You got one? What number do you have, Baylor? What number do you have? One. one. Oh, you're, you're the number. Come on up here. Tell your dad to read that to you tonight, all right? And in this book, it says, my conscience is that little voice in my head that tells me whether something is right or wrong. My conscience is a gift from God. I should obey my conscience. I can have a clean conscience because of Jesus. So conscience is connected to morality, right or wrong. And so many times, theological error has its root in morality rather than intellectual causes. Let me say that again, because that may just go right over your head. Many times, people who have theological errors, who turn from the faith, oftentimes it's rooted in morality rather than theological error, intellectual causes. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. I, I, I've used this before, but it makes a perfect illustration. Pastor Tim Keller, former pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City, tells about when he was early on in his pastorate, and oftentimes students would return from their first year of college, and he would say after taking a philosophy class or a couple science classes in college, they would come back and he would say, hey, let's go, to, let's go have coffee together. And they would go and have coffee, and all of a sudden this person who used to be strong in Christ, say their faith was in Christ, all of a sudden now he found they were wavering in their faith and they were beginning to question things. And, you know, and, they, and they fall back to that, that science course and here's some questions or here's some, some doubts I'm having because of this philosophy class I took. And, and, and Pastor Keller says that they would be struggling and be shaken in their faith and denying their faith. And he would ask them this question, very bold, but he had asked this question to him. He said, okay, who are you sleeping with? And they'd be caught off guard, like, what? What are you talking about sleeping with? How do we jump to that part of the conversation? And what Tim Keller said is this. It makes perfect sense. What happens when our belief system doesn't jive, doesn't match up to what we're doing? When we say we believe a certain thing, but it's not compatible with the way that we're living our lives. Think the illustration of my dad at the beginning. He said... He should be a witness to neighbors, love your neighbors yourself, but he wasn't living that way. And he said temporarily, he's like, I can't do that because I'm not that person. And for a few minutes, Satan had blinded his eyes to think that this was not his identity, that the sin that he had just committed was his identity, which a true believer, that's not your identity. You always come back. And you see, 
Keller says their belief system had to cave in because they liked what they were doing and they were unwilling to repent of what they were doing and living in the lifestyle they had chosen. So that's how your conscience can be eased. And that's how you can really allow your conscience, this troubled conscience, to be, to be spared and, and I'm relief gotten because I'm going to change my belief system. It's easier to change my belief than it is to change my behavior. So the false teachers had abandoned the gospel and they had abandoned what they knew to be right and holy at the expense of their notoriety, their fame, their teaching. And then Paul, he literally exposes these teachers by name. Look at it. He calls them out. He says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We don't know the details about everything these guys were doing exactly and exactly what they were saying. We learn more about this in 2 Timothy. We'll get there eventually. But these were two guys who apparently at one point were possibly leaders in the church, for sure probably professing believers who had shipwrecked their faith. They had not held to their faith, and they had not held to their conscience. And they had drifted off into the dangerous rocks of false teaching and wrecked their faith. And Satan has servants in every church who profess enough truth to be able to join the church and then from inside, what Paul calls, they teach the doctrines of demons. We're going to see them in chapter 4. And Jesus says these people are like wolves in sheep's clothing in Matthew. And Acts 20, 30 says that they will not spare the flock, but will draw people away to destruction. They'll draw people away to destruction. So that's why, if you look at this passage, why Paul is being so serious to Timothy. Timothy, here's what you've got to do. Because this is serious business. This is, in Paul's word, warfare. This is a battle. Whether you think it is or not, it is a spiritual battle. And so Paul takes serious action because he knows this battle is eternally serious. Eternally serious. And he says, whom I've handed over to Satan. I've handed these guys over to Satan. That sounds really scary. If you're a kid in here, you're like, I don't want to be handed over to Satan. That sounds terrible. What is he talking about? Well, Paul doesn't mean he literally handed them over to Satan. What's he talking about here? Well, Scripture teaches us that Satan is the god of this age. He's the prince and the power of the air. So Paul sees in some way like the world is Satan's realm and his uh, dominion. And so we know the church, the safety of the church and the believers, this is what I like to refer to as an outpost of the kingdom of, of God. It's not the kingdom of God, but it's an outpost for the kingdom. We're ambassadors for the kingdom. And so Paul literally says, these guys are doing so much damage, they're teaching false doctrine. Timothy, you need to take these guys and you need to turn them to Satan you need to expel them out of the church. Get them out of the church. They're influencing other people, and they've shipwrecked their own faith, and they're at danger of destroying other people and shipwrecking other people's faith. So this is for the spiritual protection of the body. And it's also to help these two guys realize the seriousness of their blasphemy, the seriousness of what they're doing, and possibly return and put their faith truly in Jesus Christ. And truly believe and truly be a light for the world. Serious. 
And church discipline isn't something that we talk about a lot, and churches don't talk about much anymore, because why? So many churches are so focused on growth that they're afraid, oh man, if, I, if we really discipline and we really bring attention to somebody's sin, people are going to leave the church, and, you know, and then rumors will start, and people will be pointing fingers, they're a hypocrite, they're, not, they're still there, and why am I not there? In the early church, they took serious this discipline because they realized that as using the words of Scripture, a little leaven just works through the whole loaf. It corrupts everything. And so a church can never, ever put up with false teaching. And Scripture commands the elders and leaders of the church to hold fast to the teaching and to the gospel. And, and I know it's easy to think, well, Grace would never do that. I mean, we, we believe. But think about it. How many churches across this nation... How many universities were founded as Christian institutions? But today, are they not only are they not supportive of the gospel, they literally oppose the gospel. They war against the gospel because they've been enlightened. Higher reasoning arrived at something greater. We can be in danger so quickly of forsaking the faith forsaking a good conscience because we love the world instead of the things of God. And so that's a wake-up call for every Christian. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, Paul says in Ephesians, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's serious stuff. And that's stuff that I don't naturally look around and say, wow, look at the spiritual battle we're in. But it's there. It's there. And so what do we do with this today? First of all, our head. You've got to constantly remind yourself that we are in a spiritual battle, that you are in a spiritual battle. And in this battle, many fall away and many shipwreck their faith because they don't know Jesus and Jesus doesn't know them. A person who's truly born again perseveres, sticks with it, doesn't abandon. In 1 John, John's talking about the teachers who left the church there to do their own thing. And he said, hey, they went out from us, but they weren't ever of us. If they would have been of us, they would have never left us. So what's he saying? He's saying that if you think that you can just throw off the body of Christ and abandon it because it's just me and Jesus, I got this personal relationship thing going on. I don't need all that drama of the church. You miss the point that the church is the body of Christ. And you can't be in Christ if you're not part of the body of Christ. And so there should be something inside you that draws you to God's people. The Holy Spirit. Christ. Secure in God. This is your identity. Why would you not want to be a part of the body of Christ. So remind yourself, it's a war. Then our heart, know this, if you love Jesus because you can't imagine life without him, rest. Rest. Now you may say, Pastor John, I don't understand, all right? If life is a war, it's a spiritual battle, I don't think resting and warring go hand in hand together. Well, the fight, the striving, the warfare is not a striving to get Jesus or earn salvation. We know that our salvation is God's gift. 
to us by grace, through faith, not of yourself. And so we can rest in the fact that we don't earn or work to earn Jesus, to earn his favor. But also we, we fight for rest. What do I mean by that? We fight for rest by finding our satisfaction in the finished work of Jesus. The way that we kill sin is by doing whatever it takes to be more satisfied in Jesus, in fighting the urges of this world and the pull of this world, in finding our rest in Jesus and our satisfaction in Jesus and our contentment in Jesus rather than those things that tempt to draw us away. So Jesus is our identity. He's our rest. We make much of him in this spiritual battle that we're in. And then our hands. What do we do? How do we take this and run with it? Very simply, be part of a K-group, be part of a fight club, that's accountability, that's real Christian community, that's where you literally are doing life with other people, they're looking you in the eye, and they can say, how are things going in your family life? Are you leading your kids in a quiet time? Are you being intentional with showing them the things of God? Because this world is pulling strong. Are you, are you doing those things? How's your marriage? How can I pray for you about your marriage? What are you struggling with? See, that's where you get under the hood and you really expose what's really going on. And that's where the body of Christ really can work. And those sins that pull us down, those sins that we hide in secret, and that double-sidedness of our lives is pulled out into the light. And Satan loses his power when those sins are pulled out into the light. And so jump into a K-group. Look for opportunities to be in a fight club. Grab a couple guys. It's really easy. Just grab a couple guys, a couple ladies, and say, hey, let's start meeting together every week or two weeks. And then you begin to have a plan to be specific and intentional, to ask each other the tough questions, point people to Jesus, and be in his word and hold each other accountable. We're in a spiritual battle. We rest. We make much of Jesus because of who we are in Jesus. And then we do life together. Accountability because we're in a war. Hold to our faith. Hold to a good conscience. Some not holding to these things, they've shipwrecked their faith. They've been turned over to the realm of Satan. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood.